Hello again. If you guys could turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 or your electronic devices, that would be great. Uh, for those who are new with us, we value Scripture and we preach verse by verse exposition here at the Church of Blue Ridge. And we just began a, uh, a, ser- a sermon series this fall on the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 will be going through this month, next month, and in through November. And uh, if you weren't here with us last week or you knew with us this week, we have uh, these little notebooks that we developed. First time ever, we're kind of seeing if it, if it works because it helps to connect Sunday morning with our cell group time for those who mem- are members of cell groups and are studying God's Word together through the week. So if any- anyone need one of these, by the way, who has not received one yet, because I have an extra copy in my hand. All right, we're good. All right, uh, so today we are actually beginning the sermon on the Mount properly by looking at the Beatitudes. Last week was an intro where we looked at the immediate context of Matthew 5 through 7. We also looked at the theological context by examining Psalm 1 briefly. So if you would like to, if you missed that, feel free to go back on our website and listen to that sermon. And you'll see that the theme is flourish, flourishing. That's really the theme for the entire Sermon on the Mount. And this week's title is The Grand Invitation. The Grand Invitation. And that's important because as we start to understand each one of the Beatitudes, they don't necessarily seem so inviting at first. And as I was studying this week, I was reminded about an invitation I gave my brother one time that he turned down that actually was a mistake from a certain point of view. And this took place back in the mid-90s. I was in Clearwater. I was in the Coast Guard then. And we were close to St. Petersburg, Florida, and there was a little concert venue called Janus Landing. It was really just an outdoor patio, very small. Groups you never heard of went there. And somebody in the Coast Guard station saw the name of this group, and it was the weirdest name ever. They said, hey, we've got to go check these guys out. So I said, all right, let's go. I was going to my brother's house who lived right near this place to drop something off, and I said, hey, Glenn, you like music like this type of group. Why don't you come with us? I told him the name of the group. He's like oh, get out of here, I'm not going. And the name of the group happened to be Hootie and the Blowfish, if you've ever heard of them, from South Carolina. And I literally, it's a small patio. I was standing like two feet from Darius Rucker uh, listening to these guys play, and it was not two or three weeks later that, of course, they exploded nationally. So I always joke with my brother, because he ended up becoming a big fan of theirs. Hey, you had your chance to see him at Janice Landing. So uh, at first, some invitations may not seem too grand, but then later, wow. What an invitation. And that's really an aspect of what we see in the Beatitudes uh, today. And we're going to jump right into the sermon's introduction. I gave my introduction last week, but the entire Sermon on the Mount is introduced in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. So let's read just those two verses, and then we'll make a few observations before moving on to the Beatitudes. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Again, we'll pause there and talk about a few things in, in general in regards to the sermon. First and foremost, all scholars agree that this was an actual event that was probably a lot longer than these three chapters we have. So as Matthew's writing them some years later, he's in, in including the, the high points, the really important parts of Jesus' sermon. But this definitely was an actual event. 
And one of the key words you see in here is that he went up on a mountain. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that Israel has a close relationship with several mountains that were very important. Times when God truly revealed himself. You have uh, Mount Ararat with, with the ark. We see a covenant there. You have uh, Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. You have you know, Mount Zion and, of course, Mount Sinai where Moses Uh, received the law, and then the people entered into a covenant with God. And that's what Matthew wants us to think about here. He wants wants us to see Jesus as the new and final Moses. He's not coming with a new law, but he's coming to explain the Mosaic law and apply it as it was always meant to be understood. And last week, if you go back and and listen to the sermon last week, uh, we talked about how Matthew wanted us to see Jesus as this king, the Davidic king coming with the first four chapters. There's a lot of allusions to this king who has now come. But again, Matthew is an incredible writer. Not only does he introduce us to the king, but he also introduces us to the new and final Moses. Look at this slide on the screen and look at all the similarities between both Jesus and Moses. I had never noticed this before. Some of you, probably smarter than me, have. I got this from one of the theologians I studied, but this is incredible. Both men had divine dreams surrounding their births. Both men miraculously escaped from the slaughter of children. Both men had, took flight from the land only to return later at God's direction. Uh, passing through the Jordan River was a definite theme with both, both men. One couldn't, and then Jesus, of course, through his baptism does. Uh, you see temptation in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, and of course here, the Mount of Revelation. Jesus is the new and final Moses, the the wise sage king coming to share God's wisdom with his children, with his followers, with his disciples. Also in this uh, introduction, we see that Jesus sat down. It's very significant. That's actually the was the posture a rabbi would take in the synagogue. When the rabbi sat down, everyone knew, all right, listen up, it's time to hear God's word. And as I read this, I remembered back to the time where I had a chance to go to counseling school about 10 years ago here in the upstate. Uh, I got to my last church and realized I didn't know how to counsel Christians. One class didn't cut it. But I found out the guy who wrote the textbook from my counseling class had an institute here in the upstate, and I went and learned from him. His name's Jay Adams. That may not mean anything to you, but he's known as the, the father of Christian counseling. And when I went, he still taught. And he was like 80-something years old. He had a, still alive today, actually. He had a staff, long white beard. And he would hobble up to the stage, and he couldn't stand behind a pulpit like the other instructors. So they would sit him behind this table. And once he sat down, find your seat. He's about to teach. He's about to come uh, and, and share with us some wisdom. So that's kind of what's happening here. And then another thing you see here, and I never would have known this, but if you look at verse 2, it says that he opened his mouth and taught. Think about that. That statement is incredibly unnecessary and redundant because Matthew could have just said, and he started to say, or he started to teach. So that phrase, opened his mouth and taught, is actually a Jewish idiom, and and it's used throughout the Old Testament. If you're a model reader of Hebrew or the Old Testament, you would recognize this and once again know that this is an important moment of revelation. This is a solemn moment where God is going to speak. So all these elements are here now to tell us this is an incredible moment where God is teaching wisdom on what it means to follow him, what it means to follow his Messiah, 
Jesus Christ. One other uh, thing we want to pay attention to here is you see a distinction between two groups of people. Matthew does this a few times in his gospel account. It's a distinction between the crowds and the disciples. Now, most scholars I've studied this week say that the sermon was really just for the disciples. So obviously we saw last week that after Jesus' initial ministry up in Galilee, he had this huge following. He had great fame. So there were probably thousands of people here. Uh, Most scholars believe this took place at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, There's actually, if you go to visit today, apparently there's a Mount of the Beatitudes. So there actually is a mountain where they tell tour groups at least. This is where he taught the Sermon on the Mount. Now, do we know if he really did? No, of course not. But somewhere in the hill country of Capernaum is where this took place. And so you have this large crowd, hundreds of people, maybe thousands. And as he sat down, the text tells us that his disciples came out from the crowd, recognizing the posture that he was getting ready to teach, and sat with him. So the big question is, who is the Sermon on the Mount for? Just the disciples or the crowds? And I believe, after reading one theologian in particular, uh, Dr. Pennington, that this sermon and the Beatitudes, as we'll see today, is actually for everyone here. Everyone who can hear him, both the disciples and the crowds. Because what the Beatitudes are, like the title of the sermon today, is an invitation. It's an invitation for those who already believe to orient their life according to what he's about to teach. Again, God knows how life works best. We talked about that last week. There'll be a test on that coming up here in a few minutes, so be ready, just saying, for those of you who were here last week. And then also for the crowds, this is an invitation. This is the gospel invitation. The Sermon on the Mount is kind of the long form of the gospel. Come and follow me. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. And there's a quote that I want you to pay attention to now. This, uh, it's not on the screen. I'll say it a couple times, but this is a Spurgeon quote, right? Quality quote here. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says Uh, about the sermon. The way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. I'll repeat that. The way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. And that is the invitation for the disciples. That is the invitation for those who are already saved. Trust me. Sink in yourselves. All those paradoxes that we see throughout the gospel, we'll see them in the Beatitudes, uh, come to a head. And as you know, I typically have a big idea when I preach, kind of a thesis of today's passage. And as we get ready to jump into the Beatitudes themselves, we're simply going to look at a quote by Jonathan Pennington. I think it serves well, uh, better than anything I could come up with. You'll see it up on the screen. This is what the Beatitudes are all about. Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and In the age to come. And last week we talked about a a simple phrase from the Jesus Storybook Bible that helps us to understand the entire sermon, even today's passage. God knows, Jesus knows, God knows how life works best. And I I told y'all we were going to turn that into a little bit of a, a back and forth dialogue here as we go through. So let's try it out. Now remember, one or two people might actually listen to this sermon. So they've got to be able to hear you on this little microphone. So I'll say God knows and you know what to say. Ready? God knows. All right, I heard some attitude in that, but that's okay. I appreciate it. Good stuff. Let's pray, and we'll look at the Beatitudes. Father, we thank you so much for your your grace, and and even just the time of worship we've had. We could go home 
pretty full already with what uh, we've got to sing about and, and hear and pray today. It's already been an incredible time, and now we get to hear from your word. We already have in some regard, but these Beatitudes are recognized as, as some of the most important scripture in all of the Bible, so foundational to the church. It's really the first teaching we get to in the New Testament that helps to lay the bedrock for all that will follow. And so we pray as, as we come to this sermon, as, as we come to the Beatitudes today, really the preamble to the entire sermon, that you will work in our hearts, Father. I, I've seen this week how much I need, needed a correct and better understanding of these Beatitudes. So in a way, it's kindergarten for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that regard. So open our hearts, Lord. That's my prayer. Open our hearts today as we approach these passages let us lay aside old presuppositions or thoughts about them and hear anew and afresh from your Holy Spirit and from your, your written word, Lord God. And of course, if someone doesn't know you, Lord, they're in the crowd. But draw them in, even today. Save them. Lead them to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let none of us leave here without being changed today, Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, Let's enter the Beatitudes. You'll see the subtitle there on the screen, Walk This Way. Uh, we'll go ahead and, uh, and read here in a few moments, but again, just a few uh, pieces of background information. The word Beatitude, if you're wondering about that, is actually a Latin word or comes from the Latin word, which simply means blessing. So it's kind of a leftover from the Roman Catholic Church's version of the New Testament. Uh, and the big discussion or debate is, were there, or are there eight or are there nine Beatitudes? Uh, in a way, there's eight and there's nine. So there's really just eight Beatitudes, as we'll see. But the last one, uh, Matthew or Jesus will amplify and expand because of its significance. But one thing we have to understand here as we leave in a, in a half an hour or 40 minutes from now, whatever, we're just scratching the surface today. We're just scratching the surface. I, I realize that in my time of study this week, I'm just in kindergarten with the Beatitudes. I've got so much to learn. This is an incredibly profound and deep passage that uh, we have to understand. You know, we just can't check off the list when we leave this place today. And look at this quote by John Stott that helps us to understand that. He says, We cannot plumb their depths. We are near heaven here. And after spending a lot of time this week with, with these eight Beatitudes, I can amen that. Hopefully, you will as well. A uh, few uh, things to understand with the Beatitudes before we look at them. I talked about this last week. I listened to my sermon. I don't think it was that clear, so I want to touch on it again. The word blessing, you have to understand, we have to understand what the word, the Greek word for blessing means because there's two Greek words that are translated blessing in our New Testament. And the first one is eulogia. So think of eulogy. And that's typically what we think of when we think of blessing. God blessed me with a new car. That's, that's what that word is. Well, that's not the word in Beatitudes. The word in Beatitudes is makarios. And makarios is a wisdom statement. It's a wisdom statement from an objective, experienced point of view saying, if you do this, you will flourish. You will succeed. Of course, these Beatitudes are that wisdom statement, but with a Christocentric uh, God saying them to us, right? From a God-centered point of view. Uh, this is the wise way. This is the wise path for life. So one way to illustrate it would be this. Uh, my kid's getting ready to go to college, right? So if I wanted to give him the first type of blessing, I might give him a, a gas gift card to get there. Here, here's $50 gas gift card for your drive to college. God be with you. Because my, my bank account won't be, right? I, that could be kind of the, the first one. 
Or a year or two before, I could sit down with my son and say, all right, I went to school. It, it worked out for me. I did some things well. I didn't have to incur uh, student loans. So here's some advice. Here's some things you want to do. Research every possible scholarship you qualify for and apply for them all. Plan to work while you're in college. If you don't have money, maybe go to the military and get them to pay for it. But, but here's some wise ways. That would be this type of blessing, the second type, the Macarius type of blessing that we're looking at. And that's going to be very important uh, as, we, as we move forward. The other thing we want to keep in mind, too, is, and we touched on this last week. I'll just touch on it briefly again. There was a lot of confusion in the Protestant church about the Beatitudes over the years because some have taught them as entrance requirements, which they're not. Others have taught them as this royal staircase of virtue, like the higher you go, the more virtuous you will be. That's not it either. Uh, of course, uh, I don't, I'm not worried about this in this group, but the prosperity gospel has tainted these, your best life now kind of thing, in, in a very materialistic uh, sort of way. That's not uh, correct either. But even for the rank-and-file conservative evangelical, I think there's been a misunderstanding and it's really because of grace, right? We love grace. We know that we're saved by grace, not works. And so sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we think, well, Jesus fulfilled the law on my behalf. I really don't need to pay attention to these. And we kind of read through them and say those are great, but we don't really think of applying them. And that's what I'm hoping that we can all understand when we leave here. There's a, a place for application here. These, these statements are exhortations to us. They're really profound because in one sense, it's an indicative of each, each of these eight is an indicative. It's something that's true about those of us who are saved. But there's also an exhortation that, hey, if, if I look at this and my life's not on that path, I need a course correction, right? Remember last week we talked about the, the locomotive. If you're saved, you're like a locomotive. The question is, are you on the tracks that God's designed you to be on? Or are you doing, you know, spinning around in a field, getting ready to fall on your side? So as we go through these eight, have an open heart. If you see something that, hey, God's got me in that mindset already, praise God, celebrate that. But if you see one and it's like, man, I'm not thinking that way, then recognize the Holy Spirit's invitation to course correct. Because all eight of these are an invitation. That's what makes them so profound. For those of you who are lost, this is the gospel. For those of us who are saved, uh, this is an invitation to trust God and to get on his path. Finally, structure. I just want to talk about structure, and then I promise we will read uh, these great passages. Each of the eight Beatitudes is in two parts. The first part of each Beatitude is what appears to be a paradox, right? Uh, happy are the unhappy. I mean, you could translate one of them that way or paraphrase it. So it seems like a paradox. It, it seems kind of confusing. If we're honest with ourselves, look down even real quickly at the text Poor? Is poor a good thing? Do we love poor? Do we love mourning? Do we love being hungry and thirsty? Do we love showing mercy? Maybe some of you do. I don't. Uh, uh, do, we, do we like to get our hands dirty and, and being peacemakers and getting in between of warring uh, friends? Do we like persecution? None of these are really your best life now. None of these seem really fun if we're honest with ourselves this morning. And yet, as we'll see, this is a grand invitation to freedom if we will trust God and believe that indeed this is the path. So that first half, you, you have that. Blessed are the poor, as we'll talk about, and, and, and several others. The second half of each beatitude is really the part we cannot forget. The second half is what makes the first half make sense. Because the second half, my friends, is heaven. All eight of these 
the second half of each beatitude is the reality of what those of us who are in Christ have, what we possess already in eternity, eternity with God, what's coming, what is certain, what's on the way when Christ returns and ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. And, and so as we look at these here, we're even going to make a change in the wording. You're like, uh-oh, lightning's coming. I'll, I'll explain what that is here in a moment. But first, look at this uh, slide up on the screen. These are several of the paradoxes that you will find if you continue reading through the Gospel of Matthew. You'll recognize each one of these. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the, first will be, the, the last will be first and the first last. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. My friends, all four of these paradoxes, which again are later in Matthew, come all the way back to these Beatitudes. This is the beginning of that. This is where they make sense because of what God's plan is for those of us who are his children. So look with me at the Beatitudes. We will read through verses 3 through 12, all eight of these, as well as verses 11 and 12. Now, typically, most people break them in two sets of four. The first set of four, some will say, and your study Bibles might say this, the first set of four, think of it in the vertical. Think of it as uh, having to do with our relationship with God. The second set of four, think in the horizontal, our relationship with fellow man. Now, don't, don't hold on too tightly to that because there is some cross-pollinization with these, but that is a, an okay way to look at them, and that's what we'll do. So the first four, think humility, and the second four, think authenticity. And we'll, we'll talk more about that here in a few moments. But with each one of these, you'll see the word for connects the first half to the second half. That Greek word can also be translated because of. And from you know, what I've studied this week, it's probably better than in our English translations if we use because of to truly bring out the meaning of each beatitude. So without further ado... Point your attention back at the passage, and we'll read the rest of this, this passage, this great passage of the blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, because they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, because they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, because they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, because they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So quickly, let's look at these. The first four, again, think humility. They're all characterized by humility, the opposite of pride. You'll see here, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, really simply, this just means those who have an accurate view of their moral bankruptcy. Okay, And it's not just talking to lost people. Again, these are talking to, this is talking to Christians. So as Christians, instead of having this prideful view that, that we've arrived, that we're really special, that we bring a lot to the table, God's lucky to have me on his team, that's not true. The healthiest place for us as believers to be, to have this Makarios blessing, is to have a humble attitude each day 
that I am morally bankrupt. I am so in need every day of the gospel, of God's grace, of his word, of his fellowship. I need to have that vertical orientation in my life. And why is this such a blessing? Because ours is the kingdom of God. You'll notice with these eight beatitudes, there's bookends with the kingdom of God. It's the first and eighth one. Say in the present tense, it's already ours. We're already a part of God's kingdom. Now, we know God's kingdom is not here yet in fullness. That will come when Christ returns, and we can't wait for that day. But with Jesus, the kingdom of God has pulled so close to us that we can be part of it now as we wait and look with anticipation for his coming and for the fullness of what is yet to come. That's really the point of each beatitude. We can trust God. We can let go. Anyone ever do the trust fall at like youth camp or know what a trust fall is? That's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is saying, trust me, I already broke your fall. Let go of the worldly ways, the worldly pursuits, and trust me, I've taken care of the end for you. Surrender, abandon all that you're still holding on to, and trust me, because I've already taken care of the end. That's essentially following all four of these. The second one, this is the one that we could paraphrase, happy are the unhappy. How much sense does that make, right? And yet what God is is instructing us here, what Jesus is telling us, is we are blessed when we mourn. What are we mourning? Sin. This flows right from the first one. Those of us who have an accurate view of our moral bankruptcy will be in a position to rightfully mourn the effects of sin, both in my life, first and foremost, each day, but also the effects of sin in the world. It's okay to have a broken heart. Uh, The way I think of this is that we cannot have a resort-like Christianity. What I mean by that is, if you've ever been to Caribbean Island, a resort on a Caribbean island or in Mexico, and you think this is the greatest place ever, and then you get home and watch a documentary on the island you just went to and realize what it's like really everywhere else on the island, not near the resort, that's what we're guilty of as Christians. We sometimes have this resort mentality, this sanitized life. We're afraid to let anything hurt us, kind of head-in-the-sand type Christianity. And what God's telling us here is we need to mourn. We need to let sin affect us. We need to allow it to break us and make us sad, to cry tears continually on the inside of our hearts. Now, we don't walk around with sackcloth and ashes 24-7. We, we have a lot to rejoice and be thankful for as well. But to have these tears, allow the, the sting of, of the, the horrors and the evils in society to make us mourn and cry out to God and pray for such things. Allow, and I know there's people in here who are advocates of, of adoption and fostering. That's a, that's a broken area that needs to affect all of us. Whether we foster or adopt, we should all be broken about it. Same thing with the sex trafficking. It's getting worse and worse. I just heard some things this week where it's even worse than any of us even realized right here in South Carolina, right here in our own backyard. And then there's abortion. Who can even fathom that one and a half million American babies are murdered every year? I was conceived and born in 1973 when Roe v. Wade became legal. 66 million Americans have been killed legally since then. Let it sting. There's blessing in that. That's the tracks God wants us on. That's the humility. And look what he tells us at the very end of that beatitude. Mourn, for we will be comforted. There shall be a day when God comes. In fact, you can see it for yourself up here on the screen. Look at this. Excellent passage from Revelation 21, the second to last chapter in the Bible. He will dwell with them, that's God, 
and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So we are free to mourn. Why? Because there, there shall be a day when those of us who are in Christ will be comforted. The third one, really the result of the first two. Uh, look at this. Blessed are the meek. Probably one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood terms in the Bible. What does it mean? to be meek. People who are meek are characterized by gentleness and self-control and humility. And it's the direct result of us having the correct assessment of who we really are. Again, the first two, right? Poor in spirit and mourning our sin as well as brokenness in the world brings us to a place of meekness. Meekness where we let go, we relax, and we, we recognize in our lives, where am I pursuing the world's value system? Where am I chasing after power or status or position or control? And to let those things go. That's what God's calling us to do. Again, trust fall. Trust me. Trust me. What are you chasing after uh, that is so controlling this? And look what it tells us. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, we shall, inherit the earth. When do you see the weak in this world, the meek in this world, inheriting control of the earth, right? Never. And yet here's a promise that we don't have to fight to protect every aspect of human institution and government and control. There's a point where we're going to have to let go and trust God. And when we do that, we're in a healthy place. We're blessed. And when, we, when it talks about us inheriting the earth, it's not talking about what's out this window, Folks, we live on a destroyed planet. All right, I'm a, I, I believe in the young earth. You don't have to. I believe in a global flood. You should. This planet is destroyed. It's hanging on by a thread. It is an incredibly hostile place for human life. I truly believe our ancestors used to live 900-something years because that's how great it was before it was destroyed. The earth that we get to inherit is a new earth. Imagine that. I can't, but imagine that. That's what's coming we don't have to fight so much for this one. And oh, by the way, I was going to mention this somewhere along the Beatitudes. The best way to understand these on your own time later as homework, what's the opposite of the Beatitudes? Matthew does have them, but he saves them for chapter 23. It's the seven woes to the Pharisees. The exact corresponding opposite of these for those who aren't on this path. Look at them later, and it'll help you understand especially the meek. Because who are the opposite of the meek? Those who hunger and, and thirst for power and control and will do anything to get it. We have to let go. That's what God's calling us to do. Finally, the fourth one here in this first set. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do any of you know hunger and thirst? Because I don't. I have lived my, life, my entire life in the most blessed nation in the history of the planet. And I don't know, I mean, I'm seriously, has anyone ever known true hunger and thirst? This is a point in the Beatitudes where it's really hard for us to understand, but the original audience got it, right? They understood thirst and hunger. They didn't take food or one or two meals a day for granted like we do. And again, this isn't a guilt thing. You know, praise God that we live in this nation. Praise God for all that we have. But we have to get our minds around what he means by hunger and thirst. But here it's righteousness, now, this isn't justification. These are already disciples. This is moral righteousness. This is me becoming more like Christ. And I can tell you, after 20-something years of following Christ, resisting temptation every day is exhausting. 
I cannot wait. I want to hit fast. I want to sneak up into heaven somewhere and hit fast forward on my sanctification button. Maybe I'll get yours while I'm there, right? It's impossible. But I want Christ's righteousness more. I want, I cannot wait to get to that point when temptation is gone, when the flesh is gone. We should have a natural hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, which drives us each day to his throne of grace, which drives us to his word, which drives us to prayer and to worship, to get that strength that we need. But look at this promise once again. We will one day be satisfied. That hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness will be satisfied because heaven is on the way. Now, as we continue on, we have the second four. And if the first four are characterized by the, by the key virtue of humility, the second four are characterized uh, by really this, uh, this trust and surrender, right? God's calling us to surrender. God's calling us to trust, and God's calling us to be authentic with who we are. That's a big theme here. Again, think Pharisees, right? Think hypocrisy. This is the opposite. Look at the fifth one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is not high on my spiritual gifts inventory list. All right, every time I've taken it, some of them change a little bit, but mercy is always at the bottom. So this really kicked my tail this week as I read through this. But what's amazing here is this is an indicative quality. God's calling us the merciful. So if you're like me and you see that and you think, oh my goodness, I've got some work to do. That's the point. I need to get my train on the tracks and become more merciful. This is who we are. This is who we at least are supposed to be. And mercy, some say that, uh, you know, grace, uh, grace is really directed at sin itself. Mercy is directed at the results of sin, right? That we would be willing to get our hands dirty, and coming and standing in the gap in some areas and, and, and you know, forgiving those who are hard to forgive and loving those who are the downtrodden in society. But those who will give mercy, we need to abandon ourselves and free ourselves and embrace and lean into what it means to be merciful. Because look at the promise. We shall receive mercy. There will come a day when all the effects of this sinful world will be taken away as we go, go into heaven, as we're with Christ. We will receive the ultimate mercy. And what a blessing that day will be. How amazing will that moment be in our life? Number six, blessed are the pure in heart. Finally, one that seems good, one that seems positive. This isn't so depressing anymore, right? Pure in heart's great. Sign me up. I want that. And of course, as we read this, we see that the pure in heart will see God and if you know your Psalms, this should quickly bring to mind Psalm 24. I have some of it up here on the screen for you that we can read together. Look what David writes. Most scholars believe that David wrote this on the occasion of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And the pure in heart is incredible because this gives me an opportunity to share the gospel. You cannot be with God unless your heart has been purified and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? But while that's true, that's not what Matthew's talking about here. That's not what the beatitude actually means first and foremost. The pure in heart are those who are authentic. The pure in heart here are those who live one life. You're the same whether you're home you're the same whether you're at work. You're the same whether you're here on Sunday morning or with your small group during the week. 
you're the same. That's what he means. Blessed are those who don't wear masks, right? Think, think hypocrites. Think Pharisees who have that mask problem. Blessed are the pure in heart. If you look at the, uh, the heaven part of this uh, beatitude, it says, for they shall see God. We will one day see God in all his fullness. So for us here on earth now, people need to see us in all our fullness, who we really are all the time. And I think this steps on all of our toes. We need to analyze our lives and see where am I wearing masks? Where am I portraying uh, falseness? Uh, and it, it made me think of a great title of a book from years ago. I think Bill Hybels wrote it. Character is who you are when no one's looking. We need to be real because God is real with us. So very encouraging. This is the tracks of the healthy life. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. This isn't talking about, uh, you know, Gandhi, like peace, sitting in the, uh, you know, the, your, your legs crossed. It's not talking about the peaceful, easy feeling like the Eagles song. These are people who get their hands dirty in the hard work of reconciliation. Reconciliation, that's what it's talking about here. Uh, Robert, uh, July, beginning of July, he preached a sermon on 2 Corinthians 5 on reconciliation. If you, did, if you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to it. It's a great exposition of that passage, but that's who we're saved to be, to be peacemakers. And it doesn't mean sticking our nose in people's business when it doesn't belong there. This means if you're in a position, God's sovereignly put you in a position uh, uh, for such a time as this. Think of an Esther moment where you see where two relationships are broken, or one relationship, two people are broken, and you're in a position to get your hands dirty, to do the hard work. You're going to get some bruises to bring those two together. That's what this is talking about. God's calling us to be peacemakers. Why? Because we have peace with God. God has reconciled us. He has brought us in and reconciled that brokenness. Now we need to go do that for others. This can also be a simply, simple application of evangelism. Each time we share the gospel, that's what we're doing. We're sharing the way of reconciliation and peace with God with a lost person. So this could be evangelism as well. Here's two very important passages for this idea of peacemaking. First and foremost, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's talking about a peace treaty signed in the blood of Jesus Christ through him. And then secondly, here's one of those passages from 2 Corinthians 5. All this, that's referring to our salvation, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and here it is, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then you look uh, at, at the heaven promise at the end of that beatitude, for they shall be called sons of God. We are never more like our Father in heaven than when we are interceding on behalf of others for the sake of peace. That's the promise there. All right, again, he's done the heavy lifting. Jesus has done all the heavy lifting. So we don't have to worry about the end. There's always that safety net of his grace that will catch us. So we need to abandon ourselves to be the people we were saved to and are being called to be according to the Beatitudes. That was a lot of B's in there, but nonetheless, hopefully that made sense. Now the final one, number eight. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is a tough one. I got a question for you. Who is the most, who was the most important of the 12 disciples? Who would you say? Not you, Ed, you know the answer. Anyone else? Who who, who would you say, Peter, John, who's your favorite? Matthew wrote this? Judas, Judas. good answer. Judas is the most important 
of the 12 disciples. And I bring him up because of this. He understood the Beatitudes. He understood the gospel. And that's when he said, I'm out of here, right? When he got tired of hearing Jesus talking about this death and, and, and crucifixion, because his mind was kingdom now. He was thinking about his own rising in that kingdom on earth, right? A position of great power and wealth. That's what his mind was on. And when he finally, I think, I think the breaking point was John chapter 12, when Lazarus' sister Mary broke open the expensive ointment and, and put it on Jesus' feet and, and, and did all that, uh, you know, kind of anointing him for burial. Because that's when you see Jesus say, oh, come on, man, that could have been sold for tons of money. What have you done? And it's right after that that he thinks, all right, this is a sinking ship. I need to cash in a little bit. I'll get the 30 pieces of silver, right? And I bring all this up to tell you the world doesn't value this at all. All of the Beatitudes we've just looked at, they hate it. They did back in Jesus' day, and they do today. And if you and I trust God and orient our lives according to these Beatitudes and start doing these things and taking on these attitudes, these powers that, that God's given us, the world's going to hate us. And there might come a day when they've had enough of you and me and they persecute us, right? Because Judas got sick of it. The world gets sick of it. It doesn't value what God's calling us to value. And that's when persecution comes. There's two German men. Both men were born a century apart. They were both grew up in, in Lutheran homes. In fact, one of them was a son of a Lutheran pastor. And these men would develop completely opposite attitudes toward the Sermon on the Mount. One would totally reject it and say, man, Christianity is weak. It is weak. This is ridiculous. The other would embrace it to its fullest. The first man you probably heard of, his name is Nitschke. God is dead. You know his famous quote. In fact, many of his teachings would be used, some would say misused, by Hitler in all that he did, all the evil he did. The second man connected also to Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who would come to embody this. And I encourage you, uh, there's a great, great biographies on him. Read them. He wrote a book about the Sermon on the Mount, his discipleship book. It's incredible. But he would eventually be killed because of his embodiment of these principles, living them out to his fullness, getting him arrested, he would be killed just two days before the Allies showed up to free his concentration camp. But look at this quote before his death. And if anyone could say this with authority, it was him. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. There is a joy, there is a peace that comes, the, the joy and the peace that passes all understanding when we trust God and obey the principles here in the Beatitudes, even this one, even the most scary of all of them. In fact, this one is so important and yet so scary that Jesus in verses 11 and 12 gives a ninth Beatitude, really amplifying and further explaining the eighth one. Look with me at 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's the important part of both of those. Keep that in mind. Anyone who seeks out persecution, you're on your own. This does not cover you, okay? So if, you're, if you have a Christian fish on the back of your car and you cut someone off and that person comes up and flicks you off, all right, that's not Christian persecution. You did that to yourself. If you go down to downtown Greenville with your Bible and you stand on a box and scream at everybody that walks by and tell them they're all going to hell and then they throw food at you, that's not Christian persecution. Now, granted, there is 
a good context of open-air preaching, but it's not that. All right, this, this is just simply meaning because of your faith in Jesus, because you wear the name Christian, somebody just ends your life or just makes fun of you or throws you in jail, whatever it might be. That's the persecution talking about here. And, and one thing we have to understand as Americans, friends, is our young country's history, 200 and something years, is an exception to the rule, both throughout the church's history and in most parts of the world today. Christians being persecuted is very normal. We've just gotten used to the exception. And we can all see the writing on the wall. It's, it's time is expiring even here in the United States. But that's okay. Because that is the proper attitude with the world towards Christianity. And that's where these blessings take root and take hold. So we have to believe them. And we have to remember, God, look what God's given us. The kingdom of heaven is ours. And in verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What an encouragement we have today in these Beatitudes. Again, we're scratching the surface. But I, I tell you, everything that we go on to learn in the next 11 weeks as we study the Sermon on the Mount and everything even in the gospel account of Matthew comes back to these Beatitudes. This is the root of the book and it's so important. So I encourage you, meditate on them, spend time on them, read books on them, write them out even, which is a great form of meditation. We're just scratching the surface. But God has clearly given us the way, and he's calling and inviting every one of us, walk this way. Whether you're lost or whether you're saved, trust me and orient your life according to what we see here. And so the invitation this morning is simple. There's one for the lost, which we talk about each week. Repent and believe the gospel. The invitation is always open here at the Church of Blue Ridge. Whether this morning you want to pull one of us aside or call and email us this week, there's no better conversation than what we want. We'll push everything else aside to come and share with you. It's so important to us. But even for those of us who are saved, there's an invitation here. There's an invitation, as I've mentioned, to trust God. The grand invitation. It doesn't seem like it at first. It seems kind of depressing. We have to trust God and orient our life. This is the blessed path. These are the, this is the wisdom of our creator and savior who knows it better than any of us. In fact, let's read one last passage together before we finish. This is one, you'll, you'll recognize the passage. It comes from Philippians 2, this great hymn that Paul uses. But hopefully you'll see as we read this that Jesus isn't just a teacher of the word. He's a doer. Every one of these eight beatitudes he lived out in his ministry to the fullest. Hopefully you'll read this differently like I have this week. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Even Jesus had that blessing on the end to lead him and guide him through uh, to fulfill his mission. We need to do the same. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up, and we'll pray and be done with this part of the worship service. But again, if there's anything that we can do to help you, talk with you, you have any questions, we are available uh, to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this great landmark, foundational, cornerstone teaching in the New Testament. 
I pray that uh, you will bless our entire study of the Sermon on the Mount, help to work this word into our hearts, planting, watering, even bringing a harvest, a harvest of salvation for those who are lost, but a harvest of obedience and faithful course correction for those who are saved. Lord, if there's an area in here, and I know there's some in my life, where we don't line up with what we've seen today, give us the courage and the obedience and the discipline to make the course correction, to put our tracks, our, our wheels really, on your tracks in faith and obedience. Again, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.